I have been excited about this new series that we started last Sunday in 1 Corinthians called Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. Lots of C's. I love C's for some reason. Uh, this morning we are going to deal with Paul's gratitude, and I had intended on walking through the whole text, but there was just too much going on, so we're going to have to divide this into a couple of parts. Last week we did begin this series, and you know, we... We learned about the history and the background and the context of, of the church at Corinth. We focused on that, and then we sort of dove into uh, the text. And one of the things that we learned was just the rampant carnality that the first Corinthians, uh, the church in Corinth, and through this letter we've learned that they were just plagued by this constant carnality. It was like some of the members were hanging on to some of the old ways of the world, or they had kind of gone back to those things after following Christ for a while. And we don't exactly know how this carnality or how it came about, but it was there and it was essentially plaguing this church in, in quite a few ways. Now, it wasn't the whole church. There was just some people or some members in the church that, that were plagued by this carnality. And it, it came in a lot of different forms, like sexual immorality, and they had clicky factions and, and divisions. And they just had all sorts of fleshly behavior. And I think if we're going to be really transparent and honest, and if we have our eyes open and our ears open, and we're actually doing life together as a body, we'll find that these same things are, are plaguing our own church, sometimes plaguing, plaguing our own lives. And it, it's a sad reality that we have this flesh. Uh, but the beauty of it is, one thing that I said last week is 1 Corinthians is, in a sense, it's a tough letter. It's a hard letter. There's a lot of correction in it, but it is a love letter. Because God disciplines those whom He loves. And so that's the way that we should see this letter. It is highly corrective, but more like a good parent toward His child. And so that's really what's going on here. But kind of, it's kind of mystified me as to how some of these things were manifested. And there, there's some really gross sin in this church, like incest, which in the gross level is kind of like way up there. And so uh, we don't know exactly how these things came about. We just know the church is comprised of a lot of redeemed sinners, and sometimes these things carry on. And one of the things that Paul did in the first three verses uh, of chapter 1 is he, he's really just kind of reminding this church of their true identity as saints, as a literal church of God. Um, and he, he had to do something else, too, and that was to kind of assert his apostolic authority, he calls himself an apostle by God through Christ, and he has to do that because for some reason this church had difficulty with his apostolic authority. And it's probably because you had these guys called super apostles that weren't apostles at all that were going around and undermining the true apostles, especially Paul. And this was a problem in this church that Paul really addresses in, in some later chapters. But so, you know, he's, he's reminding them of, of of who they are, they're saints, they're the church of God. He's reminding them of who he is. He's the planter who came in the spirit of God and planted this church. He's the uh, kind of the overseeing apostle to Gentile churches like this. And these are the things that he did in the first three verses. I think he even kind of mentioned that they were, by calling them saints, that that means that you are set apart for the Lord by the Lord. And so what is he saying there? He's saying the behavior that's manifested in this church doesn't align with who you are. You're set apart for the Lord, 
and for His service and for holiness, and yet some of your members clearly do not understand this. And so these are the things that he sort of accomplished through those first three verses. And uh, in the next section, he expresses his gratitude and literally describes why he's thankful. And this is just, for me, it's like being a pastor for a number of years, having a small church, and, and, and having all sorts of, you know, challenges in the church and difficulty in the church. You know, the church is essentially comprised of God's people and, and people that aren't God's people that are in it. But for the most part, there's just, wherever there's people, there's trouble. We're sinners saved by grace. And when things like were happening in the Corinthian church happen, it, it's not usually a time for pastors and elders to be thankful. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, like when there's, you know, familial difficulties and divisions in the church, like people can't get along. I'm not like, oh, praise the Lord, you know. I, first of all, I don't, Paul's not praising the Lord for their sinfulness. He praised the Lord for other things, but this is not usually a time when the elders of a church or, or the, the apostle per se here would be thankful. Yet Paul is incredibly thankful in the midst of all this, which is just kind of a mind-blowing thing to me. And... Uh, how could he be thankful at a time like this with a church that's uh, encountering or exhibiting these sorts of behaviors, right? That's, that's the great mystery. Well, we'll find out as we study the text together why he was indeed thankful. I was thinking, uh, you know, he, he's a church planter and he plants this church and then it, it, he gets this, these reports of this kind of behavior and and right in the beginning of the letter, he's reminding them of who he is, and then he's thanking the Lord for other things. And it's just, it's just amazing. His heart and his attitude is just amazing to me. It's so like Christ. But we're going we're gonna to look, look at some stuff this morning. I, I want you guys to go ahead and take your Bibles and turn over there. Maybe you're already there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 4 to 7. I was going to try to push through to 9, but no. It's not happening. My sermons are already super long, and uh, I didn't want to break Cameron's record this week. So I'm trying to keep him at the top. He's like, I did one long sermon. Only one. So I'm just kidding. I've been blowing your doors off lately. Even Dave pointed that out. Thank you, Dave, for pointing that out this last week. Really appreciate you. Take him off the elder board. Well, let's pick it up where we left off last week, and that would be verse 4. Here's what Paul says next. We see this, again, context, dealing with a difficult, sinful church and look at what he comes right out of the gate saying, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. I, I'm telling you, I think we could just preach on this verse the rest of our lives. What a verse. As I said, despite this church's ridiculous carnal attitudes and behavior, and it wasn't everyone, but it was a, quite a few people in it. But despite all of this nonsense, Paul says he's always, not sometimes, not even in just in this moment, he says he's always thankful to God. What a, what a godly, mature attitude we're seeing here in the apostle. What an example for us. And th this is this is not Paul's own doing. He was a, a church persecutor at one time. He, he was a, a Pharisee and a legalist and all these things. This is not his doing. This is the Spirit of God working in his heart, working in his life, and softening him and molding him and shaping him and making him like Jesus. 
And here he is in the midst of all this travail and struggle. And this, from verse 10 on, this is a hard letter. And here he is, before he even gets into that hard stuff, here he is showing his thanks. What a mature, godly attitude. And I would just simply begin with a, a, just a quick application here. We'll get to application later, but we need to ask ourselves right out of the gate before we really even get into this text, are we characterized by this same gratitude, by this same heavenward thankfulness when dealing with common adversity or, or, or worse, dealing with sinful carnality in, in the church or in our own families? Is this the spirit and attitude that is manifested in us during these times. I just confess to you that so often it isn't in me. More, more like it's a spirit of frustration or a spirit of despair, a spirit of anger even at times because sometimes we just pulverize each other. We do things that are just ridiculous that just make me question my calling, make me think about moving to another state. We've all felt this way, but... But we, we have a model before us here. Look at this attitude. How, how? Only by the Spirit of God. Only by the Spirit of God. What a, what a thanks. What a heavenward focus the apostle shows us here. And I would just simply say this, and this is a tough expectation and bar for us to reach, but if you really just stop and think about it for the people of God here, we're talking about Christians, we're talking about believers, we're talking about the regenerate, we're talking about the elect, we're talking about the people of God, those who believe for us, there really is no occasion in which thanks to God is not due. We are to always be thankful to God no matter what's going on in our lives. There's no occasion where, 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 where we're not to be thankful. And isn't that a difficult thing for us to pull off? I think we could just pray now and close the service. We just heard all the sermon we need for this morning. We have an example that's being set for us, and, and, and I'm passionate about it because I don't pull it off sometimes. And I want to. Do, do you want to have this attitude and, and, and it be marked by this thanks in all circumstances. I do because that's, that's the heart of Christ. H how do we get there? Well, humility is the key, I think. Submission to Christ, studying and reading His Word and coming to know Him better and more in a deeper, more profound way. That, that, that's, that's the remedy. And, 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 and these days it's, it's sad because you know, Christians, they got to knock the dust off their Bible just to get into it. Are we people of the Word because the Word washes and, and sanctifies and transforms us? And it's amazing that you can visit churches today and, and they, they claim to be people of the Word when they've got one hour of music and a 15-minute sermonette. You are not a person of the Word if your pastor preaches 15-minute sermonettes. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rude, and I'm not boasting. I'm not telling you you've got to have long sermons. I'm just telling you that if the math doesn't work, math doesn't work. You've got expository preaching where you walk line by line, verse by verse. You're, you're a person of the Word. And this is where the transformation and power is. There's just no occasion where we shouldn't be thankful. Amen. What does it say? What did Paul tell the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 
We are to be what? Thankful in all circumstances. The good, the bad, and the downright ugly. And that's what we're seeing here. This is what's being modeled. And, and we need to know again that, that Paul is not naive. Paul's not out of touch. Paul's not out of tune like a nice guitar. He knows exactly what's going on in Corinth. Just start reading from verse 10 on and he's got his finger on the pulse of this church. He's not oblivious to what's happening like some pastors are. They don't even know what's going on in their churches. And then something happens and they're sitting there going, I don't know what happened. How did that happen? Well, it had been growing in your church for 10 years. And you just now noticed it? You shouldn't be on the elder board. He's not naive. He knows what's going on in this church. He had read the reports or heard the reports. Paul was deeply saddened and deeply troubled by the carnality swirling around in this body. It bothered him. It bothered him. He was also terribly saddened by the love loss toward him thanks to those super apostles who were slandering him and degrading his apostolic authority and these sorts of things and trying to undermine his teachings and saying, you don't need Paul. He was saddened by the love loss that he was experiencing because the church now was starting to say, do we really need this guy in our life? He's a heartbroken apostle here, but he's a thankful apostle. He's heartbroken, but he's thankful. He was thankful to God. And I love what uh, Craig Blomberg, he's a commentator, a pastor and commentator. He said, surely the most striking feature of this Thanksgiving is how positive Paul can be about a church torn with strife and abusing its gifts. Man, in Amelie 2 on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, John Chrysostom uh, wrote this, and, and I love this statement. Such expressions, he's talking about Paul's thankfulness. Such expressions belong to one who is retiring from all secular things and moving toward God, preferring God to all, and giving thanks continually for the grace given. Chrysostom just hit a grand slam. He knows what's going on here, he hits the nail on the head. This is the attitude of one who is essentially leaving the world behind to pursue God. This is the one who doesn't have his or her eyes fixed on the world and all that's going on around it. They don't have an earthly perspective. They have a heavenly perspective. They have their eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what he's saying. This is one whose preferences are changing from earthly to heavenly, who is moving away from the world forsaking it and moving toward God. It is he or she that is thankful in difficulty. Why? Because they are thankful for the grace given in the past, for the grace that is given in the present, and for the grace that they know will be given in the future. That's what they're thankful for. They're mostly thankful for grace, not temporal blessings and things that are fleeting that come and go grace. And that is exactly what Chrysostom was pointing to, and it is precisely what Paul points to in verse 4. What does it say? He was always thankful to God. Why? Because of the grace that was given them in Christ Jesus. 
Why was Paul thankful? Because God had given these men and women grace in Christ. That's why he's thankful in the midst of such sinful travail. That's why. What grace had been given to the Corinthian believers? Well, of course, prior to their conversions, they were given common grace. Everyone is given common grace, right? God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 45. The fact that unbelievers have food on their table, common grace or providential grace. Everyone receives this. They had received it. They had been the recipients of it. They had been the enjoyers of it. They had that common grace, just as a great many people, and essentially all people do today. And then at their conversion, they were given saving grace. This is vastly different from common or providence. It's way different than this. This is the grace that saves. This is the grace that, that brings eternal life. It is supplied by the Father, given in the Son, applied by the Spirit, and received by the sinner through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. Why? So that no one may boast. So they had been given they had been given a general, common, providential grace prior to being saved. At the moment of their conversion or regeneration, they were, they were given saving grace, or, or what I would like to call sovereign grace. And then in their present moment, they were given and receiving what I would call subsequent grace, grace that follows salvation. And it was coming to them in the form of many blessings, in fact, all of the blessings of God that are in Christ, amen, right? That's what the text teaches. All of the blessings, all of the promises are in Christ. All of them are given by grace and grace alone. Unmerited favor. None of us earn or deserve any promises or any blessings from God. In fact, we deserve and we have earned the exact opposite, hell for all eternity. And yet God in His sovereign majesty and in His eternal love gives grace and gives blessings. And, and that's essentially what we see in the text here. It is important to know that God is not a one-time grace giver. He gives subsequent, ongoing grace to His children. Grace for every year. Better yet, grace for every century. Grace for every decade. Grace for every year. Grace for every month, grace for every week, grace for every day, hour, minute, and second, and millisecond. Grace upon grace upon grace from this, our great sovereign God. He not only gives grace at every moment, He invites us to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Hebrews 4.16. Why? To receive grace. In our time of need. Grace upon grace. In verses 5 through 9 of this very text, Paul illustrates the subsequent ongoing grace of God by describing many grace-given blessings this church had in Christ. This glorious reminder that he really begins his letter with here, it would hopefully soften their hearts before the apostle begins to issue those heavy imperatives, those heavy corrections beginning in verse 10, right? It's like, he's, it's like he's tilling the soil with the grace of God before he begins to plant these heavy, heavy imperatives, these corrections. 
It's always wise to begin this way when you're dealing with a, a stubborn saint who's, who's fallen into sin, to remind them of who they are in, in Christ and to remind them of what they have in Christ. You're tilling the soil, softening the heart, and then you can begin with your admonition. Then you can begin with your correction. And that is exactly what he's doing here. In fact, every epistle this incredible apostle wrote is written in the exact same way. He begins with indicatives, what God has done for us, and then at some point he transitions to imperatives, corrections. He never ever puts the imperatives before the indicatives because he does not want the people of God to be earners. He wants them to know that they are saved by grace and have these blessings, and then he issues the corrections. If you get them backwards, you end up with Pharisees. You get people thinking that they can earn the grace. Do all these things. If, if Ephesians was written in this form, do all these things, and then he talks about grace, what would you end up with? Earners. But he reverses it. Why? Because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes, and this is God's way. So we're going to look. We've got nine blessings that are actually listed here. We, 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 there's no way we can get to all of them. So we'll look at one through four today. And there, it's very practical. You just got to do a little mining to get this stuff out of here, but it's here. So let's begin with these, these grace-given blessings. I want it to be as practical, but also expository for you. And the first one that we see here is the blessing of abiding in Christ. This is the very first blessing that he presents. And we see this in verse 5. He puts it like this, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Stop there. Paul is essentially thankful for all the subsequent grace and blessings that were given. And here, he is essentially detailing or describing the graces that he's thankful for. And the very first one is this blessing of abiding in Christ. He was thankful to God for, for blessing these church members, this, this body of believers who were essentially abiding in Christ or for their ability to do, do so. That's what he's thankful for. And he describes what happens when, when a Christian abides in Christ. They are enriched, he says. That you were enriched in Christ. See, when you abide and remain in Christ, you are enriched. In fact, I would just say that it is impossible to not be enriched as you abide in Christ. You, you can just get close to Christ and be enriched. But to abide in Him and to remain in Him by grace through faith, to be close to Him relationally by walking in His commands, by obeying His commands, by seeking Him every day, hour, and moment, which is tough, but when you do this, unlimited enrichment. That's essentially what he's talking about here. Look at, notice how he says that in every way you are enriched. Not just in one particular way, but in every way. One, one cannot abide in Christ and not be blessed with enrichment and a plethora of other divine blessings. It's just impossible. Jesus blesses and enriches the believer's life in every way. Because God's processings are in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, and of course Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, that, that text illustrates the spiritual blessings. Because all of this blessing and all of this promise is in Christ, when a person takes hold of Christ by faith, 
all that is in Christ is now theirs. Everything that is in Christ is theirs. Enrichment, endless blessings, they're all in Christ and they become ours. And yet, if a believer, and sometimes it's just a new believer, but if any type of believer at all, new, older, veteran, halfway down the road, halfway along the journey, whatever, if a believer tries to keep one hand, in a sense, on Jesus, and the other hand on the world, kind of like one foot in Christ, one foot in the world, if they do this as some of the Corinthians were doing, then it will keep them from experiencing the way God intends for His people, experiencing the blessings, and it will hinder the enrichment. Really, this verse that, that we're all familiar with, I think kind of summarizes why. We cannot serve two masters. And I know in the context of that verse, he's talking about God and money. In Matthew 6, 24. But when you have a divided mentality and divided life where you're kind of abiding in Christ and kind of still abiding in the world, really the way God sees that is you're just in the world. But when you do this, it hampers your experience of these blessings. You, you can't, when you've got sin in your life like this, it's, it's difficult to discern that you have these blessings. It's difficult to discern if you are, in fact, being enriched because the world is pulling you away. See, this was a problem here in Corinth. And it's not the problem for all because he is thankful that some in this congregation were abiding in Christ and no longer in the world and, and they were being enriched in every way. We can't serve two masters. You can't have one hand on Christ and one on the world, one foot in Christ, one foot. You can't straddle the fence. In fact, Jesus did not permit this. Jesus said it's, it's essentially all or nothing. We're, we're familiar with the cost of discipleship that's illustrated in one particular chapter in the, in the book of Luke. You know, you, you can't love anyone more than me. You, you need to bear your cross. This, this, this language is the, the kind of language that, that, that means there's a forsakement of all else for Christ. And so, yep, yeah, but there's, there's, there's Christians that try to keep one hand on Him and one hand on the world. And they were in this church and they're in every church. Fact of the matter is we must learn to and practice leaving the world behind and abide in Christ alone. We must rid ourselves of all worldly, carnal behaviors. We must pursue purity and godliness. I understand how hard this is, but it's, it's what we are to do. There's no negotiating on this. It's our life. We must rid ourselves of these things. And we need to realize right now in this very moment through this text that the world does not bless. You might think that you're being blessed by the world, but it doesn't bless. It bludgeons. It does not preserve, it perverts. It does not enrich, it enslaves. That's what the world does. Christ alone is the blesser. Christ alone is the enricher. If we abide in Him, we will be blessed and enriched in every way. In every way. You know, Paul really did understand this. That's why you know, he's thankful here in expressing his thanks, but there's also an exhortation here. He's telling those who aren't abiding and who aren't being enriched, who have one hand on Christ and one in the world, he's telling them to stop, essentially. But he understood the value 
of abiding in Christ or being in Christ. He understood what that meant. His life had been so enriched, he wants them to experience that here. He personally experienced this enrichment to the Philippians. He declared everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have discarded everything else. He's talking about the world and everything else. He says, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Philippians 3.8, that's the NLT because it's a paraphrase. He understood he had tasted and experienced this enrichment by abiding in Christ. He wanted it for this church. He loved this enrichment and being close to Christ like this so much so that he was willing to forsake all other things. The world had lost its luster to him, its appeal. <clears throat> now the, this enrichment that we're talking about that comes through abiding, it's really just all a big blessing from God, but it was apparent in the Corinthian church. David Garland had written this. He's a commentator. It's good, good commentary on uh, 1 Corinthians. He says, the Corinthian believers, I think this might be in your bulletin, the Corinthian believers have been made rich in everything through their close relationship to Christ and acceptance of His loving sacrifice. <clears throat> That's a great statement. <coughs> Pardon me. They were enriched in everything because they were abiding, because they were in Christ. It's not everybody in this church, but a great many we're experiencing this. Paul witnessed this enrichment here in this church as he listened to some of these brothers and sisters speak and share their knowledge of Christ, right? Notice how he says, in all speech and knowledge. He could tell when he interacted with some of the members of this church, he could hear that they were being enriched and sanctified by being in Christ. He could hear it in their tone. He could hear it in their language. He, as they expressed their thoughts and beliefs and theology regarding Christ, he could hear it. It was there. And, and when you are enriched in Christ, it will be apparent to others because it will pour out of you. And he could see it. He, he knew these brothers and sisters in the Lord here, man. He could tell by the way they were talking now, not all but some, and how they expressed this knowledge. When he first arrived in Corinth, I can't even imagine what this group of people were like. It wasn't like they were hanging out on a corner or anything like that. They were just people that God assembled and brought into the church, but... We know what being an unbeliever is like. I'd certainly do. I was one for 30 some odd years. I'm thinking that when he came into this community and began to preach the gospel and started to interact with people, some of these very same people that were now Christians who were abiding and enriched, I'm sure some of them prior to that used profanity. I don't think there's ever been a generation in the history of the world that uses profanity like ours now. But it was around then. I'm sure that some of them had use quite a bit of profanity, uh, but you know now they're, because they've been enriched, they're now speaking praise. They probably used uh, a mountain of expletives, right? But now they were speaking exultantly regarding Christ. They probably blasphemed. There's no doubt that they blasphemed, but now they're speaking boldly for Christ. That's the transformation. That's the sanctification by being in Christ. That is the enrichment. It comes out in our speech, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our behavior. Paul is thankful for this grace that was given to this church. He can see that with, with a great many in this, in this congregation, that abiding in Christ had so blessed and enriched their lives, even to the point of it coming out in their speech, especially when they shared their knowledge of the gospel. 
But as I said, this was not true of every member. If it were, we wouldn't have this letter. Maybe it would just be a thanks letter and a praise instead of so much admonition. And we must understand, too, that Paul also mentions these enrichments or the enrichments of speech and knowledge because there were some not-so-faithful, carnal sort of believers and members of this church that were misusing speech and misusing knowledge and, and lording these things over others. But Paul was thankful to God for those who were abiding in Christ, those who were being enriched in speech and knowledge in a plethora of other ways. He expresses that thanks here. Let's move to the second blessing. Number two, the blessing of gospel-centeredness. We see this in verse 6. He says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul was thankful to God for blessing the Corinthian church with a really a kind of a gospel-saturated, gospel-centered perspective in ministry. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? It means to keep the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15, keeping it at the center of your sermons, at the center of your ministry, at the center of your lives. That's what it means. And there were some brothers and sisters in this church who were doing this and doing it well. And that is what the testimony about Christ is there. You see that phrase? That is the gospel. The testimony about Christ is the gospel about Christ. It speaks to His work on behalf of spiritually dead sinners. Through His life where He earns our righteousness. Through His death where He pays for our sins. Through His burial where He settles our accounts. Through His, through his resurrection where He brings justification for us. And conquers death and Satan, sin, death and hell. They, had, they kept that message, which is the only message of the church. It's not Black Lives Matter. It's not woke. It's not social justice. It is the gospel. We are learning from this seemingly sinful church that at least they could keep the gospel at the center of what they're doing, which churches today cannot do. They kept the testimony of Christ at the center. Not everyone there, but a great many. Calvin wrote, God set his seal to the truth of his gospel among the Corinthians. Boom. The gospel was confirmed among these brothers and sisters by the Holy Spirit who re regenerated them and gave them spiritual gifts. You know, this is one way that you could tell that they were keeping the gospel at the center things because they had gospel-centered gifts they were using, they had received from the Spirit that they were using to serve one another. Talks about that in the next one. It was confirmed among them by Paul, who was there to witness the literal birth of this church. It was confirmed among them by its members who were new creations because of the gospel. It was confirmed among them by even outsiders who were either blessed by this church's outreach or outraged by its message because the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are perishing. But just about anyone will take a sandwich. The, the whole community and, and the church and Paul himself, even the Holy Spirit, they confirmed that these, these people had the testimony of Christ, the gospel, and in a sense were keeping it at the center of all they were. There was no questioning the authenticity of this church because the gospel was front and center. I mean, that's really how you know today. 
the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. That was their mantra. That was their message. That was their mission. Now, Paul knew this church had some immature carnal members who were still clinging to the world and even doubting the resurrection because he has to deal with that later. But he also knew that there were many other members, including the elders, those who were preaching there, who were diligently protecting, preserving, and preaching the gospel. The church, this church was gospel-centered way before it was cool to be gospel-centered. That became a catchphrase. I mean, it's on our sign for crying out loud. Ten years ago when we planted, I was like, that's what we'll be. And almost every new church at the time was saying, that's what we'll be. Half the churches that were planted at the same time as this one don't even exist. They weren't really gospel-centered. That's not to say that God doesn't close down decent churches too sometimes. Sometimes He does. He has His reasons. I don't know why He would close down a church that keeps the gospel at the center of who they are. Maybe He doesn't. This church was gospel-centered before that was cool, and Paul was absolutely thankful this. He's thankful that they were abiding and being enriched. He's thankful that, that, that they had the gospel at the center of who they are. These, are. these are good reasons to be thankful, amen? Third blessing, number three, the blessing of spiritual gifts. We see this in verse 7a. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Paul was thankful to God for blessing the Corinthian church with spiritual gifts, despite the fact that some of the members were literally abusing these spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Some of them were exercising their gifts without love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Some were lording their gift over the others. Oh, I speak in tongues. You don't? Well, you're not quite the Christian that I am. Tongues being intelligible languages, not she left on a Honda. Some of you know what I said. There are two main lists of spiritual gifts in, in the book. We find them in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 11. You just kind of combine both of those sections of Scripture. You get a pretty good long list. They are prophecy, and, 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 and really prophecy just means proclaiming the word, and it's not future telling. You're not a fortune teller. You know, this is not Cleo. Remember her? Prophecy, you've got teaching, you've got encouraging, giving, leadership, mercy, wisdom, knowledge, faith, uh, healing. That's not saving faith. That's just a stronger measure, I suppose, so you can gird up others. But faith, healing, uh, miraculous powers, discernment, tongues, that's languages. And, and then, of course, following tongues, you've got interpretation. And then you also have what's called just in a general way helps. You're just helpful. That's a spiritual gift. That's both those lists sort of combined. And every true believer is given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit. Some are given even more than one. There are some theologians that suggest that each believer is given all of the spiritual gifts. I do prefer that interpretation. I just don't see how it lines up with Scripture, especially when Paul says things like, to one is given wisdom, to one. That particular believer was given the spiritual gift of wisdom. And then, it, and then he would say this, to another is given the spiritual gift of knowledge. To one is given this gift, to that one is given that gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, that doesn't really line up with 
wouldn't, wouldn't he have said to one is given this, 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 this? Nor does that interpretation fit with the passages that speak regarding many members in the body of Christ, like 1 Corinthians 12, 20, uh, 12 chapter 12, verse 12 through 27. I mean, if every single believer had all of the gifts, there'd be no reason to have a body where you have multiple gifts being used through multiple members of that body. If I have all the gifts, we really don't need Brenda. Why would we need her gifts if I have them all? And if you know me personally like my wife does, she says, you're barely gifted. <laughs> Amen? We don't, I don't think we have them all. I don't. I think some people have quite a few. But I'm not going to war over that. Fine, if you have them all, you've got great responsibility. You better get to work. All right? Doesn't fit those texts, though. There is one body with many members and one head. That's Christ. I would say every member is given at least one spiritual gift. Am I into spiritual gift tests? No. I think that's corny. I think if you are in Christ, you ought to know how you're gifted. Now, use the gift. You, you can literally take a survey that helps you figure out what your gift is. I'm sure there's been a great many people who have, and it's not at this church or some other churches, but some churches like Big Valley had a spiritual gift test. And then you would take the test and then, you'd okay, this is my gift, and they'd plug you into a ministry. And then after about two months, you'd realize, I'm not gifted in the nursery. <laughs> Amen? The test lied. It was a Scantron. I knew it. I was running out of time, so I just started marking C, 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 right? I don't trust anything like that. You ought to know what your gift is. What are you good at? What are you, what are you inclined to do? What do you want to do that can build up the body? So we're not going to take time to talk about that. What is the point? Why, why is every member given at least one spiritual gift? What's the point? Is it for their own good? No, it's for the good of the body. It's for the good of the church. It's so that they can serve the rest of the body of Christ and for the ultimate idea and purpose of building up the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. It's for ministry and our common good. 1 Peter 4, 10. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. I want you to notice that important detail there at the end of verse 7a. It says, not lacking in any Wow, what is Paul telling us? He is telling us that this was a church that was not lacking any spiritual gifts. It was super, super, super blessed. Its members had combined together, had all of the spiritual gifts. That's pretty amazing. What a blessing. There was no gift that was lacking in this body. It had all of the spiritual gifts within its membership. It had men who could prophesy, preach the word. It had teachers who could teach the word. It had encouragers. It had givers. It had men and women with strong faith who could help build up those that didn't have really strong faith. They would have helped me at times. It had leaders. It had multilingual servants, right? Because that's what a tongue is. It's Spanish. It's German. It's French. It's Hebrew. It was Latin back then. 
multilingual servants who spoke multiple languages, who could translate and help those who, where there was a language barrier. It had an army of helpers. It had people who could heal. And I'm thinking that if Paul's still around, the apostolic era is still going on, and I'm one of those that believes only apostles could do this, I think what is meant here through the healing is probably that they had medical talent. Maybe they were physicians or nurses. Lord knows, we've got nurses in this church. It hurts when I do this. Brenda says, stop doing that. <laughs> oh, look, it went away. They had an army of helpers, people that could do just about everything. They had a Bruce. A man with the gift of mercy. Hallelujah. Amen. If it weren't for him, I'd be dead. They had everything. What, well, it is, it's only the Lord, Bruce, so you be careful with that. Don't start running crazy with that and asking for a raise to go from zero pay to one dollar. <laughs> they had it all, man. This was a, a gifted, talented, equipped church. And you know what? So is RHC. So is Sovereign Grace. Man. What a Can you see why Paul is thankful? There's more to be thankful for than to be depressed over. It's all perspective, right? Nothing was lacking here. This church had it all. I like what Charles Hodge said. The Corinthians had not only the inward gifts of repentance, faith, and knowledge, but also those of miracles, of healing, of speaking in tongues, of prophecy, in rich abundance. No church was superior to them in these respects. Wow, what a blessed church. Paul, he knew. He wasn't ignorant. He wasn't naive. He knew this church had some immature carnal members who were still clinging to the world, but he also knew that it was blessed with every imaginable spiritual gift and that its members did not hesitate to use them for the building up of the body and Paul was oh boy was he thankful to God for this was he ever fourth and final blessing number four the blessing and this this might be my favorite the blessing of a glorious future verse 10b mm, this is what gets me going mm. listen to what he says after talking about the spiritual gifts he says as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Oh. Paul was thankful to God for blessing the Corinthian church with a glorious future. Just, just stop and think about what he's saying here in this context. A, a church that is marked by spiritual gifts and spiritual action, and yet a church that is marked by by terrible carnality and sinfulness and wickedness. You've got this weird marriage of, of these things happening in this body, and, and, and he, is, he is telling every member in this very moment, he is telling every member, even those who are carnal, you have a glorious future. Is that the first thing that comes to mind when somebody we know gets entangled in sin? We're thinking they've got a pretty terrible future. Maybe they're not in Christ. I don't know what's going on here with, with, with i got to pick a name that nobody in this church is named by. Sally, Sally, Sally. I don't know what's wrong with Sally. We, we don't think that 
you've got a glorious future, Sally. We think you might not. And here is Paul, and he's saying, you, it's a reminder to those who are being carnal. You're a saint. You have gifts. You have talents that have been given by the Holy Spirit. You have an invitation to abide in your Savior and, and be enriched in every conceivable way. And you have a glorious future. Man, if somebody comes to me when I'm in sin and tells me these things, I am going to be more inclined to repent. That is not me. I don't know what came over me. I'm so sorry, Lord. I want to return to who I am and what you've called me to. I want the, the blessed hope of that glorious future and to not put my stock and hope in carnality and in sin and, and the lusts and pleasures of the flesh which are fleeting and condemning. You see what he's doing here? This is the most effective way to bring a wayward saint back to his Lord or her Lord. To tell them what they have. You can beat the snot out of them with the Bible. It's not going to help. To remind them of what they have. To remind them of what they're missing. That's the jackpot. And that's why these epistles are written like this. With the indicatives, what you have, what God has done for you. And then the imperatives, here's what you do with it. You see, the cleverness of God, the brilliance of God, the infinite wisdom of God, even in the structure of Scripture, not just its wording, but in its placement of truth. God is a genius. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But we sure think we know us. Oh, this is just, it's just phenomenal. This glorious future. Jesus' return is conveyed with the word wait, which is kind of a tough one to pronounce in Greek. It's apek, apek, apek dek home. Apek dek home. It's a hard one to pronounce. That's the Greek word that's used here for wait. And that, 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 is, that is speaking to the return of Christ. It, the way that it should be rendered here, I, you know, I love the ESV, but I think it's a little weak here. It should be rendered as you eagerly wait, not just as you wait. The word eagerly should show up before here. It's actually translated that way in the NIV, which I think is a little better there. As you eagerly wait. Paul's use of this hard-to-pronounce yet unique Greek word, it, it always carries with it some eschatological dimension. It appears three times in Romans 8 where Paul is describing the end times and, and the redemption of God's children. Romans 8, verse 19 and verse 23, verse 25. It appears in Galatians 5, 5. We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. It appears in Philippians 3.20, we eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see it there? It's got eschatological connotation. It always refers to what's coming. And even that word, eschatological, is kind of hard to say. You heard me trip up on it. The Corinthian church was, was not in, entirely enraptured with the here and now, is what Paul is saying. You're not just focused. Some of you in this church are focused on the here and now, overly focused on the here and now. But, but, but 
not everyone in this church was focused on the here and now. Some of them were waiting for the glorious appearing of Christ, for this eschatological reality. And I would just simply say, not to beat up on churches more, but kind of to do that a little bit, but churches today are way too focused on the here and now. We have a glorious, bright future. That's our focus. We are preparing men and women for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to enter into the political realm. Our mission is, is very narrow. We are about the gospel and we are about the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. We want to be ready ourselves for that and to prepare other men and women for it. And we do that through the gospel. This church was not entirely enraptured with the here and now. It did have a future focus. It waited eagerly for the return of Christ. In fact, this attitude was prevalent in most early churches. You may not have known that, but first century churches, even into the second century, they, they were all about the return of Christ. That was their focus. They were focused on preaching the gospel and being ready for the return of Jesus. They were under the impression that he was coming in any moment because they were surrounded by such carnal evil. Remember, Christians then were turned into human candles and persecuted in a way that we can't even fathom. Charles Hodge said this, The second advent of Christ, that's the return of Jesus, so clearly predicted by himself and by his apostles, connected as it is with the promise of the resurrection of his people and the consummation of his kingdom, was the object of longing expectation to all early Christians. Man, they just had a better perspective than we do because they were focused on the return of Christ rather than our social issues and, and political issues and all these other things that were taking up the mantle for these days. I'm not telling you to be against abortion. Be against it with all your might. But I'm just saying there is a distraction in churches today. They're so focused on the here and now. We know that not every member of this church maintained a heavenward view. Some were still very much focused on the world. They were pleasure seekers who sought satisfaction in sexual immorality and gluttony. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, and of course in chapter 11, verse 21a, there were dividers in this church. 1 Corinthians 3, 4, there were idolaters in this church. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7, there were drunkards in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21b. The church had its issues. It had its worldly people that were focused on the things of the world and engaging in the things of the flesh. It had this, just as every church does. One of the reasons why we don't realize these things are prevalent in churches today is because we don't take enough time to get to know anyone. And the minute you start rubbing elbows with people, getting to know them and eating out with them and dining with them and having them over and all that, you start to realize there are things in your church that you didn't think were there. And now you're met with a challenge to lovingly, 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 lovingly correct. Because we want the best for our people, don't we? We just don't know it because we don't know anyone. And this is particularly hard in big churches. I, I was spiritually born in a big church and kind of raised in a big church and thought big church was the only way and realized I really didn't know anybody. And they didn't know anything about me. And early on in my faith, I was happy about that because I still had stuff in my life that did not belong there. 
to those who want to be carnal and somehow Christian at the same time. Anonymity is an important thing. Not being known. Hiding away in a big group. And that is not the life that Christ has called us to. It isn't. Praise God for small churches. Praise God for churches of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 28 people. I don't know how many people are in here right now. I don't want to count them because then I'll get depressed. It's like, we only have 28 people. Oh, yeah. And then I start getting all fleshly and weird. I tell you, this church had its problems. It did. But it also had its gifts. And it had people who were abiding. And it had people that were using those gifts. It just, it just it had great things, too. And I'll tell you what, because it had all these troubles and difficulties, that didn't keep Paul from recognizing the, the godly behavior and some of the other members, right? Not everyone was like that, that, that group of carnal people. It didn't stop him from reminding the whole church, really in this letter, it's the entire church he's addressing here, even those who aren't tangled in these things. It didn't stop him from recognizing the good godly behavior. It didn't stop him from reminding the whole church of its identity and blessings in Christ. That's what he's been doing here. In verse 7a, he is essentially encouraging the faithful to stay ready for Jesus. Or 7b, I should say, he's encouraging the faithful to stay ready for Jesus. And he's also exhorting the not-so-faithful to get ready for Jesus through repentance. That's what he's doing here in this verse. God blessed the Corinthian church with a glorious future, the return of Christ. And ultimately, Paul was thankful for this blessing as well. Now we can get to our application and wrap up. God gave the Corinthian church subsequent grace in the form of many, many blessings. He gave them the blessing of abiding in Christ. And that is such a blessing that we can be close to Christ. And that blessing enriched their lives. He gave them the blessing of a gospel-centered perspective, gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered ministry and lifestyle. Not all, but a great many. He gave them the blessing of spiritual gifts so they could minister to one another and build each other up. He gave them the blessing of a glorious future, the return of Christ, the consummation of His kingdom. And I'm thankful because God is giving RHC subsequent grace and the exact same blessings. The Corinthian blessings are our blessings. They belong to every true church. They belong to every real Christian from here to Timbuktu and for all time, every generation. Paul's glorious, because that's what it is, his glorious reminder in this text is meant to encourage faithful Christians to keep abiding in Christ, to keep the gospel at the center of their lives and ministries, to keep exercising their spiritual gifts, to keep ready for the return of Christ, and to inspire thanksgiving. God has given us these amazing blessings and a million more in Christ. We should be incredibly thankful to Him at all times. Since our struggle with carnality and sin will not change the blessings of, say, for instance, a glorious future. You see, my struggle with sin and my struggle with carnality at times, that doesn't cancel out my glorious future. It doesn't. And that's grace. That's grace. You see, in religion, when, when, when you get entangled in sin, you lose whatever it is that God granted. But because 
We are judged by Christ's perfect performance. I lose nothing. You lose nothing. And that inspires me to live for Christ. We should be just insanely thankful, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what is going on in our church, no matter what is going on in our, our city, state, nation, world, southern Europe. It just really, in light of eternity, none of it really matters. We should be so, so, so thankful because our ultimately our glorious future is fixed and foolproof because it is based entirely on Christ's perfect performance. Now this glorious reminder is also meant to exhort, to correct the not-so-faithful carnal type of believer who has one hand on Christ and the other on the world to do what? To repent and abide in Christ alone. To repent and put the gospel at the center of their life, at the center of all that they are, and to walk in it. To repent and use their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ and to repent and be ready for their glorious future, the return of Jesus Christ. So it's meant to encourage those who are faithful and to exhort and rebuke in love those who haven't been. Don't we want to be walking in practical holiness when Jesus returns, not in carnality and sin? If He were to come today, would we be embarrassed or enamored with His beauty? Just think about that. If He were to come today, what would He find you to be doing? Looking at stuff on your computer? Do you want to be, if, if you were in Christ, do you want to be embarrassed when He returns? Quite frankly, He's with us now. We should be embarrassed now, not only when He returns, but just think about that. It's like, it's like being in your room, doing something you ought not do, then the parent swings the door open and you go, whoa! Is that how you want to be found? It's not how I want to be found. I want to be enamored with His beauty and His glory. I want to be thankful in that moment that you are here, Lord, and you are ending my pain now and the pain of millions of other believers that you are going to bring justice now, finally. Now we'll see social justice. Now we'll see a kingdom that, that has no end and no, no precedence. Fall off bikes or have straw hair. Isn't that what you want? How do you want to be found when He comes? Do you want to be enamored? Or do you want to be embarrassed? Lord willing, we will look at the five remaining blessings and wrap up this section a week from today. Lord willing.